Section 10 of A Popular History of France, Volume 5. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. A Popular History of France from the Earliest Times, Volume 5, by François Guizot, translated by Robert Black. Chapter 36. Henry IV, Catholic King. 1593-1610. Part 5. Henry the Fourth accomplished all that, when he wrote to Rosny, he had shown himself resolved to undertake. External circumstances became favourable to him. Since his conversion to Catholicism, England and her queen, Elizabeth, had been colder in the cause of the French alliance. When, after his declaration of war against Philip the Second, Henry demanded in London the support on which he had believed that he might rely, Elizabeth answered by demanding in her turn the cession of Calais as the price of her services. Quite determined not to give up Calais to England, Henry, without complaining of the demand, let the negotiation drag, confining himself to saying that he was looking for friends, not for masters. When in April 1596 it was known in London that Calais had been taken by the Spaniards, Elizabeth sent word to Henry, then at Boulogne, that she would send him prompt assistance if he promised, when Calais was recovered from the Spaniards, to place it in the hands of the English. Quote, if I must be despoiled, answered Henry, I would rather it should be by my enemies than by my friends. In the former case it will be a reverse of fortune, in the latter I might be accused of poltroonery. Elizabeth assured the French ambassador, Arlet de Sancy, that it had never been her intention to keep Calais, but simply to take care that in any case this important place should not remain in the hands of the common enemy whilst the king was engaged in other enterprises. Anyhow, she added, she had ordered the Earl of Essex, admiral of the English fleet, raised against Spain, to arm promptly in order to go to the king's assistance. There was anxiety at that time in England about the immense preparations being made by Philip for the invasion he promised to attempt against England, and for the putting to sea of his fleet, the Grand Armada. In conversation with the High Treasurer, Lord Burleigh, Elizabeth's chief minister, Sancy found him even colder than his Queen. Burleigh laid great stress upon all that the Queen had already done for France, and on the one million five hundred thousand gold crowns she had lent to the King. Quote, it would be more becoming, he said, in the King's envoys, to thank the Queen for the aid she had already furnished, than to ask for more. By dint of drawing water, the well had gone dry the queen could offer the king only three thousand men on condition that they were raised at his own expense quote. Quote, if the king replied sancy must expect neither alliance nor effectual aid on your part he will be much obliged to the queen to let him know what course she takes because he on his side will take that which will be most expedient for his affairs some of the king's counsellors regarded it as possible that he should make peace with the king of Spain, and did not refrain from letting as much be understood. Negotiations in London seemed to be broken off. The French ambassadors had taken leave of Elizabeth. The news that came from Spain altered the tone of the English government. Threats of Spanish invasion became day by day more distinct, and the Grand Armada more dreaded. Elizabeth sent word to the ambassadors of France by some of her confidants, amongst others Sir Robert Cecil, son of the High Treasurer, that she was willing to give them a last audience before their departure. The result of this audience was the conclusion of a treaty of alliance, offensive and defensive, between France and England against the King of Spain, with a mutual promise not to make, one without the other, 
either peace or truce, with precise stipulations as to the number and pay of the troops which the Queen of England should put in the field for the service of the King of France, and further, with a proviso establishing freedom of trade between the two nations. The treaty was drawn up in London on the 24th of May, 1596, ratified at Rouen by Henry IV on the 19th of October following and on the thirty first of october the states-general of holland acceded to it whilst regulating accordingly the extent of their engagements easy as to the part to be played by his allies in the war with spain henry the fourth set to work upon the internal reforms and measures of which he strongly felt the necessity they were of two kinds one administrative and financial the other political and religious he wished at one and the same time to consolidate the material forces of his government and to give his protestant subjects lately his own brethren the legal liberty and security which they needed for their creed's sake and to which they had a right he began about the middle of october fifteen ninety six by bringing rosny into the council of finance saying to him quote, you promise me you know to be a good manager and that you and i shall lop arms and legs from madame grivelet as you have so often told me could be done madame grivelet or mrs pickings was in the language of the day she who presided over illicit gains made in the administration of the public finances rosny at once undertook to accomplish that which he had promised the king he made in person a minute examination of four receiver-general's offices in order with that to guide him to get a correct idea of the amount derived from imposts and the royal revenues and of what became of this amount in its passage from collection to employment for the defrayal of the expenses of the state Quote, when he went on his inspection, the treasurers of France, receivers, accountants, controllers, either absented themselves or refused to produce him any register. He suspended some, frightened others, surmounted the obstacles of every kind that were put in his way, and he proved, from the principal items of receipt and expenditure at these four general offices, so much and such fraudulence that he collected five hundred thousand crowns, or one million five hundred thousand livres of those times, and about five million four hundred and ninety thousand francs of the present date, had these sums placed in seventy carts, and drove them to Rouen, where the king was and where the assembly of notables had just met. It was not the states-general properly so called that Henry the Fourth had convoked. He had considered that his authority was still too feebly constituted, and even too much disputed in a portion of the kingdom, to allow him to put it to such a test. And honest and sensible patriots had been of the same opinion. D'Aubigne himself, the most independent and fault-finding spirit amongst his contemporaries, expressly says, quote, The troubles which were not yet extinguished in France did not admit of a larger convocation. The hearts of the people were not yet subdued and needed to obedience, as appeared from the excitement which supervened. End quote. Histoire universelle, page 526 besides henry himself acknowledged in the circular which he published on the twenty fifth of july fifteen ninety six at this juncture the superior agency of the states-general we would gladly have brought them together in full assembly he said if the armed efforts of our enemies allowed of any longer delay in finding a remedy for the plague which is racking us so violently our intent is pending the coming of the said states to put a stop to all these disorders in the best and quickest way possible. End quote. 
Quote, the king, moreover, says Sully, had no idea of imitating the kings his predecessors in predilection for and appointment of certain deputies for whom he had a particular fancy, but he referred the nomination thereof to them of the church, of the noblesse, and of the people. And when they were assembled, he prescribed to them no rules, forms, or limits, but left them complete freedom of their opinions, utterances, suffrages, and deliberations. Economie royale, page 29. The notables met at Rouen to the number of eighty, nine of the clergy, nineteen of the noblesse, fifty-two of the third estate. The king opened the assembly on the 4th of November, 1596, with these words, full of dignity and powerful in their vivid simplicity, quote, If I desired to win the title of orator, I would have learned by rote some fine long speech, and would deliver it to you with proper gravity but gentlemen my desire prompts me towards two more glorious titles the names of deliverer and restorer of this kingdom in order to attain whereto i have gathered you together you know to your cost as i to mine that when it pleased god to call me to this crown i found france not only all but ruined but almost entirely lost to frenchmen by the divine favor by the prayers and the good counsels of my servants who are not in the profession of arms by the sword of my brave and generous noblesse from whom i single out not the princes upon the honor of a gentleman as the holders of our proudest title and by my own pains and labors i have preserved her from perdition let us now preserve her from ruin share my dear subjects in this second triumph as you did in the first i have not summoned you like my predecessors to get your approbation of their own wills i have had you assembled in order to receive your counsels put faith in them follow them in short place myself under guardianship in your hands a desire but little congenial to kings greybeards and conquerors but the violent love i feel towards my subjects and the extreme desire i have to add those two proud titles to that of king make everything easy and honourable to me L'Estoile relates that the king's favourite, Gabriel d'Estrées, was at the session behind some tapestry, and that Henry the Fourth, having asked what she thought of his speech, she answered, quote, I never heard better spoken. Only I was astonished that you spoke of placing yourself under guardianship. Quote, Ventre Saint-Gris, replied the king, that is true, but I mean with my sword by my side. End quote. Journal de Pierre L'Estoile, page 185. The Assembly of Notables sat from November 4, 1596, to January 29, 1597, without introducing into the financial regimen any really effective reforms. The rating board, or Conseil de Raison, the institution of which they had demanded of the King, in connection with the fixing of imposts and employment of public revenues, was tried without success, and was not long before, of its own accord, resigning its power into the King's hands. But the mere convocation of this assembly was a striking instance of the homage paid by Henry the Fourth to that fundamental maxim of free government, which as early as under Louis the Eleventh, Philip de Comines expressed in these terms, quote, There is no king or lord on earth who hath power, over and above his own property, to put a single penny on his subjects without grant and consent of those who have to pay, unless by tyranny and violence, End quote the ideas expressed and the counsels given by the assembly of notables were not however without good effect upon the general administration of the state but the principal and most salutary result of its presence and influence was the personal authority which sully drew from it and of which he did not hesitate to make full use 
having become superintendent general of finance and grand master of the ordnance he exerted all his power to put in practice as regarded the financial department a system of receipts and expenses and as regarded materials for the service of war the reforms and maxims of economy accountability and supervision which were suggested to him by his great good sense and in which henry the fourth supported him with the spirit of one who well appreciated the strength they conferred upon his government civil and military his relations with the protestants gave him embarrassments to surmount and reforms to accomplish of quite a different sort and more difficult still at his accession their satisfaction had not been untinged by disquietude they foresaw the sacrifices the king would be obliged to make to his new and powerful friends the catholics his conversion to catholicism threw into more or less open opposition the most zealous and some of the most ambitious members of his late church it was not long before their feelings burst forth in reproaches alarms and attacks in fifteen ninety seven a pamphlet entitled the plaints of the reformed churches of france memoire de la ligue pages four twenty eight to four eighty six was published and spread prodigiously Quote, none can take it ill said the anonymous author that we who make profession of the reformed religion should come forward to get a hearing for our plaints touching so many deeds of outrage violence and injustice which are daily done to us and done not here or there but in all places of the realm done at a time under a reign in which they seemed less likely and which ought to have given us better hopes we sir are neither spaniards nor leaguers we have had such happiness as to see you almost born and cradled at any rate brought up amongst us we have employed our properties our lives in order to prevent the effects of ill-will on the part of those who from your cradle sought your ruin we have with you and under your wise and valiant leadership made the chiefest efforts for the preservation of the crown which thank god is now upon your head we do beseech you sir to give us permission to have the particulars of our grievances heard both by your majesty and all your french for we do make plaint of all the french not that in so great and populous a kingdom we should imagine that there are not still to be found some whose hearts bleed to see indignities so inhuman but of what avail to us is all they may have in them of what is good humane and french a part of them are so soft so timorous that they would not so much as dare to show a symptom of not liking that which displeases them and if when they see us so maltreated they do sum up sufficient boldness to look another way and think that they have done but their duty still do they tremble with fear of being taken for favourers of heretics the writer then enters upon an exposition of all the persecutions all the acts of injustice all the evils of every kind that the reformers have to suffer he lays the blame of them as he has just said upon the whole french community the noblesse the commons the magistracy as well as the catholic priests and monks he enumerates a multitude of special facts in support of his plaints Quote, good god he cries that there should be no class no estate in france from which we can hope for any relief none from which we may not fear lest ruin come upon us and he ends by saying quote, stem then sir with your good will and your authority the tide of our troubles direct your counsels towards giving us some security accustom your kingdom to at least endure us if it will not love us we demand of your majesty an edict which may give us enjoyment of that which is common to all your subjects that is to say of far less than you have granted to your enemies your rebels of the league 
we will not stop to inquire whether the matters stated in these plaints are authentic or disputable accurate or exaggerated it is probable that they contain a great deal of truth and that even under henry the fourth the protestants had many sufferings to endure and disregarded rights to recover the mistake they made and the injustice they showed consisted in not taking into account all the good that henry the fourth had done them and was daily doing them and in calling upon him at a moment's notice to secure to them by an edict all the good that it was not in his power to do them we purpose just to give a brief summary of the ameliorations introduced into their position under him, even before the Edict of Nantes, and to transfer the responsibility for all they still lacked to the cause indicated by themselves in their plaints, when they take to task all the French on the Catholic side, who in the sixteenth century disregarded in France the rights of creed and of religious life, just as the Protestants themselves disregarded them in England so far as the Catholics were concerned one fact immediately deserves to be pointed out, and that is the number and the practical character of meetings officially held at this period by the Protestants, an indisputable proof of the liberty they enjoyed. These meetings were of two sorts. One, the synods, were for the purpose of regulating their faith, their worship, their purely religious affairs. Between 1594 and 1609, under the sway of Henry the Fourth, Catholic king, seven national synods of the Protestant church in France held their sessions in seven different towns, and discussed with perfect freedom such questions of religious doctrine and discipline as were interesting to them. At the same epoch, between 1593 and 1608, the French Protestants met at eleven assemblies, specially summoned to deliberate not in these cases upon questions of faith and religious discipline, but upon their temporal and political interests, upon their relations towards the state, and upon the conduct they were to adopt under the circumstances of their times. The principle to which minds, and even matters, to a certain extent, have now attained, the deep-seated separation between the civil and the religious life, and their mutual independence, this higher principle was unknown to the sixteenth century. The believer and the citizen were then but one, and the efforts of laws and governments were directed towards bringing the whole nation entire into the same state of unity and as they did not succeed therein their attempts produced strife instead of unity war instead of peace when the french protestants of the sixteenth century met in the assemblies which they themselves called political they acted as one nation confronting another nation and laboured to form a state within a state we will borrow from the intelligent and learned Histoire d'Henri IV by M. Poisson, pages 497 to 500, a picture of one of those assemblies and its work. Quote, After the king's abjuration, and at the end of the year 1593, the French Huguenots renewed at Mantes their old union, and swore to live and die united in their profession of faith. Henry was in hopes that they would stop short at a religious demonstration, but they made it a starting point for a new political and military organization on behalf of the Calvinistic party. They took advantage of a general permission granted them by Henry, and met not in synod, but in general assembly at the town of Saint-Foy, in the month of June, 1594. Thereupon they divided all France into nine great provinces or circles, composed each of several governments or provinces of the realm. Each circle had a separate council, composed of from five to seven members, and commissioned to fix and apportion the separate imposts, to keep up a standing army, to collect the supplies necessary for the maintenance and defence of the party, 
the Calvinistic Republic had its general assemblies, composed of nine deputies or representatives from each of the nine circles. These assemblies were invested with authority to order, on the general account, all that the juncture required, that is to say, with a legislative power distinct from that of the crown and nation. If the king ceased to pay the sums necessary to keep up the garrisons in the towns left to the reformers, the governors were to seize the talliages in the hands of the king's receivers, and apply the money to the payment of the garrisons. And in case the central power should attempt to repress these violent procedures, or to substitute as commandant in those places a Catholic for a Protestant, all the Calvinists of the locality and the neighboring districts were to unite and rise in order to give the assistance of the strong hand to the Protestant governors so attacked. Independently of the ordinary imposts, a special impost was laid on the Calvinists, and gave their leaders the disposal of a yearly sum of 120,000 livres, or 440,000 francs of the present day. The Calvinistic party had thus a territorial area, an administration, finances, a legislative power, and an executive power independent of those of the country or in other words the means of taking resolutions contrary to those of the mass of the nation and of upholding them by revolt all they wanted was an huguenot stadtholder to oppose to the king of france and they were looking out for one End of section ten